Okay, good morning. This week we have the privilege of studying Parshas Mishpatim together. And uh, we'll do our brief overview. It's a little more, more difficult to do an overview today because Mishpatim is so disjointed. There's a million and one mitzvot in Mishpatim. And I, I believe I've said it last year, I'm sure I say it every year. To me, it's so profound that we have Mishpatim after Yisro for the following reason. In other religions, one might assume that the Torah is given this incredibly high spiritual experience. Jewish people... Uh, surround Harsinai, Kodesh Baruch who gives his treasured gift, the, uh, the Torah. And it's this incredible, empowering experience. They hear the voice of the Almighty Himself. They hear God's Aser Sadibros, His Decalogue, His Torah, which according to Rav Sadiqon, according to others, the Aser Sadibros captures succinctly the totality of Torah. All of mitzvos are captured within the Ten Commandments. And then where do you go from there? What's next? How do you leave Harsinai? What's next? So in Judaism, what's next is Mishpatim. And that's why Mishpatim begins with the Vav. Ve'ela ha-Mishpatim. Look at the opening Rashi. Komakum shenem or Ela pasal asarishonim. Ve'ela mosif alarishonim. Normally it says Ela these. It comes to negate what came earlier. It comes to move on, to put that in the past. But here the Vav means mosif, we're adding to. It's a continuation of. Maharishonim misinai. Don't think that in Judaism spirituality is climbing on top of the mountain, hearing the voice of the Almighty, feeling spiritually uplifted. Don't think in Judaism spirituality is when you're in shul, lost in your prayers. You know where spirituality is found in Judaism? Civil law, criminal law, tort law, the laws of damages, the laws of lending, the laws of your ox scores, my ox, the laws of uh, slavery, the laws of... It's incredible. Right after the, the big principles, right after the broad strokes of the spiritual high, come the details. Because real holiness is rooted in the details. A person who's committed to live on top of the mountain, but they can't come back down and apply it to real life, they've lost out. They're missing out. They're missing out. Those who are learning the daf can appreciate this. Mechavrusa, Dr. Avram Belazan, likes to point out almost every daf that we've been learning today. But you know, the... the the Kiddush Adayim Raglaim, the Kohen Gadol, has to also, when he comes out of the holy activity, when he comes out of the service of the holiest day of Yom Kippur, he not only goes in and immerses in the mikvah before he goes in, but when he comes out, he also has to wash his hands and feet in a sanctification ritual. Why? He's done with the holiness. He's finished. Why do you wash? You wash before you eat bread. You wash before you go into shul. You wash before shachar's mincha marv. What do you mean you're washing afterwards? What's the Kiddush Adayim Raglaim? Why does the Kohen Gadol have to wash on his way out? And the answer is because the Kohen Gadol, the symbolism, the idea is that you take the Kedusha and the Kedusha is not left behind. You're bringing it with you. So not only do you prepare for the holy experience of going into the Kodesh HaKadoshim, you prepare for the holy experience of coming out. Coming out of the Holy of Holies is also a holy experience. Going back into the mundane world, re-entering society is also a holy experience. If you look at the Rambam, the Rambam writes, when one immerses in a mikvah, when do they become purified? When they're underwater? I would have thought, when do you become purified? When do you become tahar? When you're tovel in the mikvah? When you're underwater? As long as you have no chatzitza, you have no barrier, you're fully immersed in the water, there's no hair sticking out, nothing is sticking out. At that moment that you're fully immersed with no barrier, I would have thought that moment, that's when you're transformed, that's when you attain a status of being tahor. But if you look at the Ramam, he doesn't write that. The Ramam writes, you know when you become tahor? When you come out. When you come back up for air. When you re-enter. Because becoming tahor, Kedusha, is not escaping the world. Kedusha is not escaping into the Kodesh HaGadoshim. Kedusha is not escaping into the mikvah. Kedusha is taking that back into the world. So the Jewish people couldn't stay at Harsinai. Holiness, sanctity is not attained by trying to stay. You couldn't stay at Harsinai. You can't stay at Harsinai. Sanctity is attained when you take that back with you, when you take that back with you into the world. You know, the, I think it was the Rav who had the Vort. Why is it that uh, we have no idea where Harsinai, the real Harsinai is? We don't go visit Harsinai. Har Habayis is our eternally sacred, sacred space. What's the difference? Why did Har Habayis attain such a higher status than Harsinai, where the Torah was given? And the answer is because on Harsinai, it was God in search of man. God gave us the Torah. Harabayas is man in search of God. It's our experience of looking for Hashem. So you had to leave Harsinai. 
And the quest of life is man in search of God. Not God in search of man, of Harsinai. So, you can look at Mishpatim and go, really, that's it? We went from Bracious, the formation of a family, the exodus, the liberation, God's affection and love, leaving Egypt, taking us out miraculously on the wings of eagles. We came to Harsinai, this incredible spiritual high. And where do we go into now? This parsha we're about to flip through. Sale of a daughter, murder, killing, death caused by an animal, bodily penalty, falling into a pit, one who steals livestock, laws of self-defense, the laws of shomrim, if somebody asks you to guard their thing, what happens when you borrow, the laws of collateral, taking care of the people who are poor, free loans, justice, the sabbatical year, the three pilgrimage festivals, the conquest of the land. That's it. You went from Harsinai, the form of winds of Ingalls, God's affection, the cloud, the pillar of fire to the laws of loans and banks and a judicial system and, ju- and the answer is yes because holiness is not found by escaping the mundane holiness is found in the mundane when you live a distinguished when you live a sacred life within the mundane that's the vav that's what Rashi is saying it's not Pasul we're not rejecting what came earlier this is Mosif this is the not only continuation this is the application of everything that came earlier Rabbi Mansur spoke on Shabbos but the people with split personalities who are pious in the shul and when they go to work there's a whole other individual that comes out they're relentless they're brutal they're nasty they're dishonest that's not Yadus in Judaism the person is the only, the only fulfillment of Yadus of Torah is not when you segregate there's the Yid in shul and there's the Yid at work there's the Yid in Shul and the Yid on the beach or in the gym or at the supermarket or who gossips at coffee at Starbucks. There's have to be a consistent. Also in the daf this week, Toho Kaboro. person has to be consistent inside and out. Everywhere you go, not only in Shul, not only in private, but in, in every aspect of our... That's the Vav. This Vav is an entire Musarvort. You could speak for hours about this vav, the Eilah HaMishpatim, taking Harsinai into the world of Mishpatim, into all these detailed laws that we just spoke about. Okay, so that is Parshat Mishpatim. That's what it means to be a Yid. That's what it means to be a Jew. We're going to study together Perek Chav Beis, chapter 22, beginning Pasuk Yutes. Chapter 22, beginning Pasuk Yutes. It's in the stone art scroll Chumash. On page 430. Thank you. Page 4. Three zero. Page chapter twenty-two, verse Yutes, and it's as good a place to start as any. I've shared with you many times. The Torah is really originally not broken into chapters. That was added later. The notion of the chapters that we have is added later. The Torah actually originally was broken up into sections. The Samach you see right there means sasum stumos and psuchos. We have. If you look actually on the page, even in the Stone Chumash on page 430, you see the breaks? On, on the second line you have a break, the third line you have a break. Those of those, both of those times you have a continuation of the same line. So it's a paragraph break, but the new paragraph begins in the same line. Then you have, look at the second to last line on the page, you have a break that goes till the end. You don't have a new paragraph until the next line because sometimes it, only, it ends in a more significant way. So that's when the Torah was given to Moshe, Moshe HaKash Baruch ordained to Moshe where those breaks are given. Actually, we have a tradition that it's in those breaks. Gemara says, this is where Moshe was given time to process what Hashem had just told him. He needed to come up for air. Here he's scribbling. God is dictating. Moshe is recording. He needed to come up and process what Kosh Baruch had just told him. And that's what these breaks in the Chumash represent, where Moshe processed. But they also represent... Uh, breaks for us in terms of the theme, in terms of, in terms of the, uh, in terms of what's going on. So here you have a sta- samach. This is a sasum. This is one of the closed breaks where it continues on the end of the line. But it's a good place to start because it begins a new section. So perech aveis pasuk yates zoveach loyelohim yacharam bilti lashem levado. Right in the context of all these miscellaneous, seemingly miscellaneous, one of the great tasks. If you'd like a good exercise when you go home today, sit with Parshish Mispatim and try to figure out the order. These are not random. Why were these mitzvahs chosen for this Parsha? And why were they chosen in this order? What do they have to do with one another? And what do they have to do in this order? Is a good, fun, fun exercise. I guess it depends how you define it. You're looking for things to do with your grandchildren? Yeshiva week? Sit with Parshish Mispatim and ask them, why were these mitzvahs chosen? 
That's not going to cut it, huh? Okay, never mind. But, but uh, in theory, why were these mitzvahs chosen and why were they chosen in this order? So, Zoveach le'elokim yacharam. Says the Pasuk, if you bring an offering, a zevach, you bring a sacrifice to God's idolatry, yacharam shall be destroyed. Only to Hashem, bilti l'Hashem levado. Only to God should a sacrifice be brought. What does yacharam mean? It's an unusual word. What should be destroyed? The sacrifice, the person... What's Yacharam? Says Rashi, Yacharam, Yumas, death, death penalty, capital crime. Velamanemar Yacharam, so of course that begs the question. If it means death penalty, so say death penalty. Most Yumas, it wouldn't be unusual for this parsha. Why does it say Yacharam, to destroy? Furthermore, moreover, we already have the death penalty for this violation. Rashi references Dvarim. We also had it earlier. We just had it in the Aseris Adibros. Well, we didn't have the death penalty, but we had the Isser of Avodah Zarah. Elofish shalah pirish aleiza avodah chayef misa, shalah tomar kol avodos b'misa, bo'u pirish lecha, kan zoveach le'elohim yacharam. Lomo lecha, mazvicha avodah nasas b'fnim l'shamayim, afan imar b'hamakter rabbanasach, shen avodos b'fnim, v'chayev ala nechol avodah zarah. Ve'in shedarka la'avda b'kach, ve'in shedarka la'avda b'kach. Says Rashi, you know why it's repeated again here? To teach us. I don't know, earlier it said idolatry is forbidden and punishable by death. But what is idolatry? What does it mean, idolatry? So here it says, Zoveach. Zoveach means like a zevach, that which parallels our worship, that which parallels our service, which could mean incense offering, it could mean on the private altar, it could mean on the public altar, the outside altar, in the azara, in the courtyard of the temple, it could mean um, somebody who does a libation. Whatever parallels our sacrifices qualifies as idolatry, as Avodah Zarah. And that's why the Torah repeats it here, Zoveach, to liken it, to create a parallel to our idolatry and Yacharam. And the punishment is destruction, which means Misa. Which means Misa. Who is this warning to? Who is this warning to? That you're not allowed to or uh, worship idols. Simple understanding. To whom does the Torah direct its words? Am Yisrael. is the Jewish people. Moshe is talking to the Jewish people. Torah is given to the Jewish people. Don't worship other gods. Don't worship idols. Comes along the Ibn Ezra and says no. The Torah is not giving an instruction for the Jewish people. We already were told this. When were we told this? The second of the commandments. I am the Lord your God. That's the obligation of Emunah. If you assume it's the first mitzvah, the first of the Aseris Adibros, Tosfos, there's a big discussion among the Rishonim. Whether Anochi Hashem Lokecha, in last week's Parsha, I am the Lord your God, is that the first of the Ten Commandments? Or is that a prerequisite to the Ten Commandments? According to some, they don't even count it among the Ten. Because if you don't believe there's God, there's no such thing as a commandment. So implicit within the acknowledgement of a commandment is the acknowledgement of, is the affirmation that you believe that there's a God. So you don't need to be told, believe in me. If you're going to follow a commandment, it automatically implies believing in God. So what was, that's the first commandment. What's the second? You're not allowed to make other gods. You're not allowed to follow other gods. So says the Ibn Ezra, the Jewish people just in last week's parsha were warned about idolatry. This Pasuk Zavech Elohim Yacharam, one who brings a sacrifice similar to a Jewish sacrifice to an idolatrous god, shall be destroyed, must be talking about Rak Ba'avur Ha Ger. This is directed to the Ger. Who's a Ger? A convert. Because of Achor of Ne'emar this is the connection to the last Pasuk and to the next Pasuk. Ibn Ezra is bothered. As I just alluded to moments ago, we should be bothered with this entire Parsha. How do you create the theme? How do you create the continuation of these Pesukim? What's the connection of one mitzvah to the next? What does don't... Bring, uh, don't serve an idol have to do with don't sleep with an animal bestiality and what does that have to do with don't, don't be cruel to a convert what do these three things have to do with one another 
So says the Ibn Ezra, here's how you're going to connect them. The last Pasuk Yilches, bestiality, the prohibition to sleep with an animal. Who sleeps with animals? Not the Jewish people. This was a Gentile practice. Now again, it's maybe a little tougher for us. 2014, so universal, so loving. We're so, uh, we're not supposed to speak negatively. But the Ibn Ezra living when he did and where he did is describing that this was not a practice among the Jewish people. Bestiality was not a fear among Jews. This was a fear among the nations of the world, the Gentiles of the world. On the heels of that prohibition and also... Don't worship idols. And don't bring that into the Jewish experience. That's what Ibn Ezra writes. Al-Tanai Yagur Be'eret Yisrael, because the Torah is going to go on and talk about God's going to promise the smooth transition into the land of Israel on condition, Al-Tanai. And what's the condition? Don't bring these practices. Don't bring moral corruption of sexual impropriety. Don't bring idolatry. Don't worship celebrities or the mighty dollar. Don't bring pop culture. Don't bring sexual immorality. Don't bring unethical mores of the time into the land of Israel or it will vomit you out. It will spit you out, says Hashem. So that's how the Ibn Ezra sees in these psukim. That is the connection. What, what does the Torah say? Zoveach la Elohim. Someone who brings a zevach, a sacrifice to an idolatrous god, writes to Ibn Ezra, Shaya Elohim Malachim. Why does Elohim? Meaning the Ger, the convert to Judaism, who's now joined the Jewish people, but previously has in their repertoire, previously has in their life experience worshiping an idol. Now that you join the Jewish people, leave it behind. Purge it from your experience. Don't repeat that behavior. Don't bring it with you. That's what the Ibn Ezra explains. This is not directed towards the Jew. We were already told in the Aseris Adibros. This Pasuk is directed towards the convert. <clears throat> and that's why the very next Pasuk, V'ger lo sonev lo A convert, you shall not aggrieve, you shall not aggravate. Don't cause to pain, don't taunt, don't oppress, and so on. <clears throat> I was bothered this morning when I was looking at this before the Ibn Ezra. What does Pasuk Yates have to do with Pasuk Chaf? What did you put a Samech? Why did you create a section break and then put, don't worship idols, be kind to the convert? But according to Ibn Ezra, now you understand, Ibn Ezra explains so um, beautifully the continuation here. Lashem Levado, go continue with Ibn Ezra, only God shall you worship. Rak Lashem HaNechbad Levado, Shushem HaEtzem, Velo Yisarev Acher Imo. Don't mix anyone in with God. Don't ascribe power. Don't ascribe dominion to anything other than to the Almighty. Rak Lashem Levado. Just hold on. Look at the Svarno. Svarno says, what do you see from this Pasuk? This is the source of a prohibition that we have called Shituf. Lashem levado. Zoveach la Elohim yacharam. Worship another God, you'll be destroyed. Bilti only to God levado, alone. Why do you have to say levado alone? That should bother you in the Pasuk. Bilti Lashem. Just serve God. The authentic, the real God. Not the Elohim. Not these false gods. Why the word levado? Says the Svarno. Beloshituf Elohim acherim. The prohibition of shituf. What's shituf? Shituf is a form of idolatry. The Jewish people, for us, Shituf is Avodah Zarah. For non-Jews, they're not warned in Shituf. If a non-Jew worships Shituf, they've not violated Avodah Zarah. What's Shituf? So the poskim say, Christianity. Christianity. The Trinity. The whole philosophy of the Trinity, believing that God has expression in other ways, as a child, has uh, other forms of, of, uh, of existence, that's shituf, to attach something to God, to say that God has an addendum, God has a, a corollary, that's shituf. So the halacha we follow in Shulchan Aruch is, that for a Jew, shituf is Avodah Zarah. So for a Jew to believe in the Trinity would be idolatry. For a non-Jew to believe in the, tr- in the Trinity is not idolatry. That's why, so according... What about all the idols? What about the... the- 
Yeah, so they don't worship that. Those are symbols. They do worship. They don't worship they in the really sense of bowing down. It's symbols, just like we have Lahavdil, Elif Alfi Avdalos. We have symbols. They'll say, What about that Torah scroll? What about the mezuzah? What about those tefillin? What about the Lahavdil, Elif Alfi Avdalos? Those are symbols. I don't want to get into this now, but, but that's it's a separate topic we've spoken about previously. There's actually, I did a shear for, there's a video on the internet if you want to watch. But according to most poskim, that's why Christians are not. For Jews, it would be biblically prohibited as as idolatry, but but it's not idolatry. So therefore, it's according to most. Correct, like a partner, partnership. You're giving God a partner. Exactly, you're giving God a partner. So the Svarno sees in our parsha, in our words, Lashem levado, worship God alone. Meaning, He has no partners. God has no corollaries. God has no. There's no committee. It's God alone, Hashem, Liva Do. So, yes? The next passage, when he talks about tearing Gerima Yitam Beretz Mitzrayim, he talks that you were a stranger. It doesn't talk about coming. Oh, so what does it mean, Kegirim Eisim? Perfect segue. Thank you, Alex. So, Pasachov, Vigir lo sonev lo sachatsenu, Kegirim Eisim Beretz Mitzrayim. Don't taunt, don't aggrieve, don't, don't uh, cause pain to the convert, to the stranger, to the Gair. Why? Because you are Gerim in Mitzrayim. What does it mean in this context that you are a Ger? What does it mean? So Rashi says, Ger lo soneh onaz dvarim. This means, don't taunt the, con- the Ger with words. What does it mean, onaz dvarim? Don't say, remember when you, were, uh, you weren't Jewish? Remember, remember when you were a no good bum? Remember when you were before you became observant? Remember before, you, you're not allowed to taunt with words. Remind them of their past in a way that that causes anguish. And don't take advantage of them financially. Why? Continues Rashi. You're going to remind him of his past. You're going to taunt him. He'll do the same to you. You think you're so special Jew. You think you were always this way. You too were a stranger in Egypt. You too were a convert. You too transformed yourselves. And the Mechilta learns from here, the blemish in you, you should not point out in others. Don't call out others for their deficiency when you share that deficiency. The pot calling the kettle black. So Alex Rashi is like you. What's a ger for Rashi? A stranger. A migrant. Somebody who moved, an immigrant, somebody who came from elsewhere, who's, uh, in this country, you'd call them an alien. A legal alien, an illegal alien. It's kind of a hard, whatever your, whatever your political view on immigration, which I have no comment on, you have to admit alien is a pretty rough word to label somebody. Well, that's, what, that's legally what we refer to somebody. It's a little bit not so sensitive. Right? So, so uh, alien. So that's what the Torah is saying. You were aliens. You were immigrants. You were strangers. You were outsiders. You knew what it was like to be an outsider. Don't oppress others on the fact that they're outsiders. You knew what it was like to be an outsider. Says the Ibn Ezra. What does it mean, Gigerim? Ger, Pasichaf. Once the convert accepts to leave the idolatry behind, when the convert joins you on your terms and purges that experience from his consciousness, accept him. Why? Understand, and this is the critical theme of this entire section that we're studying today. Know that you are more powerful than he or she. You have the upper hand. Why? Because the immigrant, the stranger, the outsider is always weaker, more vulnerable, could easily be preyed upon, could be taken advantage of. And before you exploit, I mean, think about the history in America, but, right, immigrants and and Alien, illegal aliens have been exploited in terms of business, in terms of what they're paid, in terms of sweatshops, in terms of the person who moves, the person who's the outsider or the stranger is tremendously disadvantaged. Says the Torah here, remember a time when you were disadvantaged. 
And as Jews, we can certainly remember this in all of our constantly being kicked out and moved into different countries and, and coming in with a disadvantage. Remember when you were disadvantaged and don't take advantage of others. And now the Ibn Ezra, who's very, as you see, focused on the continuation, the juxtaposition of these verses, says, now that we mention the vulnerable and disadvantaged, who comes next? What's the next pasuk? Just as we talked about the convert, the outsider is disadvantaged, next comes the orphan and the widow. They too are disadvantaged. They too are powerless. They too are vulnerable. They too don't have the same leverage, the same voice, the same power. And here's the critical Ibn Ezra. You ready? Says the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra notes an incongruity grammatically. What do you see here? It says, Lo sa'anun. The Almana Viasom in verse 21, it says, You shall not cause pain to the orphan and the widow. Don't cause pain. Lo sa'anun is in the plural. In sa'ane, and then in the chafbe uh, is the next verse. Emane sa'ane also. But if you do cause him pain, why does it shift? Says the Ibn Ezra. Koloroa adam shuma'ana yasaba amana valoya azraim. Ki'ilu gamhu yakshav ma'ana. Because anyone who witnesses or observes, if you see someone take advantage of another who's disadvantaged, and you don't intercede, and you don't get involved, and you don't stop them, you too are guilty. You too are guilty. What? The law Why? Because it says that I would leave the wives with those. It doesn't say. Well, it means generically. We'll see that in a moment. It means both. We'll see that in one moment. But the Ibn Ezra notes the grammatical incongruity and concludes that the Torah is trying to communicate a very powerful lesson. That not only is the individual who exploits the vulnerable guilty... The society and the community that passively allows the vulnerable to be neglected or exploited, they entirely are guilty as well. In fact, the Chizkuni makes the same point. Let's just keep reading for a moment. So, Chavalaf. Now, according to the Ibn Ezra, we understand the continuation. We went from the ger telling him, you want a full entry into the Jewish people? Leave the idolatry behind. If you leave the idolatry behind, not only do you have full entry into the Jewish people, there's a special mitzvah to welcome you, to love you, to protect you, and to make sure that you're never taken advantage of. Once we identify you as a candidate for being taken advantage of, we are reminded of others. Whom? The orphan and the widow. Do not cause pain. Don't take advantage of the widow and the orphan. So if you do take advantage of them, they're going to cry out to me, says God. And you know what's going to happen? I'm going to hear his cry. And I'm going to get angry. And I'm going to kill you. And you know what's going to happen? Your wives will be the widows. And your children are going to be the orphans. This might be the harshest section of the Torah. Maybe harsher to me than the, the Tochacha. And why does God communicate it so harshly? God is teaching the Jewish community to send a message. Don't mess with the vulnerable. Don't mess with the vulnerable. God roots for the underdog. You're going to take advantage of the vulnerable? The disadvantage? God says, I have no compassion. I have no sympathy. I have no patience. You mess with the vulnerable, I will kill you. That, that's actually a direct quote. <laughs> I will kill you. You made a widow or orphan feel alone. You took advantage. I'm going to turn your wife into a widow. I'm going to turn your children into orphans. It's harsh. It's harsh. From a kind, compassionate, benevolent, magnanimous God, it is harsh. But intensely, in, um, in, um, it's, it's harsh on purpose. Intentionally so. God is communicating where our focus and where our efforts should be. Let me read to you. You probably don't have it in your Mikroskidolos. Some editions of the Mikroskidolos do have it. An incredible interpretation of the Chizkuni. 
the Chizkuni, the 13th century French rabbi, says the Chizkuni, uh, 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 uh. Losa Anun, Mitzvah Zuk Suva Balashan Rabin. If you look until now, you'll notice, he says, that while Parshas Mishpatim is replete with countless mitzvos, says the Chizkuni, they're all given in this parsha, Belashon Yachid. Civil law, jurisprudence, um, tort law, loans, damages, Shabbos, holidays, they're all written in the singular, Belashon Yachid. Lo se'anun, don't take advantage of the orphan and widow, writes the Chizkuni, mitzvah zuksuva Belashon Rabin. Masha'en came b'chol adinam haksuvim b'parsha zu. Why? Says the Chizkuni, this is the only mitzvah in our parsha that's written in the plural. You know why? Because when you stand by, when you build a society or a community that is apathetic and indifferent, when the disadvantaged and the vulnerable are neglected or taken advantage of, God says, I will hold the entire community guilty. All society is guilty and will be punished. It should say, says the Chizkuni, api oscha. I will get angry, I will kill you. It says, Why the plural? It sounded like only one person was the perpetrator. Says the Chizkuni, because ein mochem, because you didn't object. You didn't protest. You didn't intercede. You didn't step up. You didn't make a difference. Says the Chizkuni, that's why this mitzvah stands out. I'll tell you something. I don't think I read this to you in the past. On April 12, 1999, Nobel laureate Elie Wiesel, maybe I did this in the Parsha share in the past. I don't remember. Elie Wiesel gave an impassioned speech in the East Room of the White House. He was invited as part of the Millennium Lecture Series by then President Bill Clinton. And here's what he said, quote, What is indifference? Etymologically, the word means no difference. A strange and unnatural state in which the lines blur between light and darkness, dusk and dawn, crime and punishment, cruelty and compassion, good and evil. Of course, indifference can be tempting. More than that, seductive. It's so much easier to look away from victims. It's so much easier to avoid such a rude interruption to our work, our dreams, our hopes. It's after all awkward and troublesome to be involved in another person's pain and despair. Yet for the person who is indifferent, his or her neighbor are of no consequence, and therefore their lives are meaningless. Their hidden or even visible anguish is of no interest. Indifference reduces the other to an abstraction. I know where I quoted this when I wrote about and spoke about the Aguna crisis. The woman who's left in Aguna, like the widow and the orphan, says Elie Wiesel, they feel meaningless. They feel alone and isolated. They feel invisible. Because if the community could not rise to their defense and to protect them and to take care of them, then what else could they conclude but the fact that their life is utterly meaningless and not worth noticing? Continues Wiesel, in a way to be indifferent to that suffering is what makes the human being inhuman. Indifference, after all, is more dangerous than anger and hatred. Anger can at times be creative. One writes a great poem, a great symphony. One does something special for the sake of humanity because one is angry at the injustice that one witnesses. But indifference is never creative. Even hatred at times may elicit a response. You fight it, you denounce it, you disarm it. Indifference elicits no response. Indifference is not a response. Right? So, given his history, Eloisel's words are so poignant. And that's what the Chizkuni says in this section. And in the next one we'll see in a moment about Staka as well is that the Jewish community is, is uh, charged with a mission. It's charged with a mission. We are to notice the widow and the orphan and the vulnerable and the convert and the stranger and the immigrant. Anyone who could feel like an outsider. Anyone who could feel alone. You asked, as a sexist, we just refer to the widow, not the widower. What about the widower and so on? So Rav Yaakov Tzvi Mecklenburg, the, the Tzav Kabbalah, you learned about him earlier, those who go to people of the book, the mask which taught about the Ksav Kabbalah. He says this word, Yasom Va'almana, says the Ksav Kabbalah, the word Almana means Al-mana. What's a mana? If you go to Israel and you order in the pizza store a mana, what's a mana? A portion. Al-mana means someone who's missing a portion. Says the Ksav Kabbalah, the Almana is not a widow. 
The almana is anyone who's missing something in life. They're missing friends. They're missing their job. They're unemployed. They're suffering with infertility. They're missing children. They're missing social connection. They're missing their family. They're mi- almana. The almana is someone who's missing a portion. They're lacking. They're lonely. They need the protection, the love, the affection of the community. They're missing something. And that's the real definition of a community. Belashon Rabbim, according to the Chizkuni, the Ibn Ezra, the Ksav Kabbalah, this entire section and the progression of these Psukim is to teach us that we, God, is trying to fashion an ethical and sensitive society. Not just a group that are, that are observing criminal law. Don't steal. Your car bangs into another car, don't keep driving away. Leave a note, pay for damages. More than that, target and identify the vulnerable and take care of them. Never aggravate them. Don't make them feel outsiders. Don't make them feel they stand out. Okay, continuing. God described the punishment. And he says, you'll die in the sword. Yeah. Why the sword? Yes. Maybe that's the harshness of the punishment against. Maybe the sword is a descriptive. It's, it's harsh. I don't know. I didn't see specifically. It's a good question. Look at the Orachayim HaKadosh. says the Orachayim, Ger lo soneki gerim. Rashi Pirit. Rashi Piresh Afu Kigerim. You're gonna make fun of him? He's a stranger? You're an outsider, you don't belong here? Guess what? You are an outsider. You also didn't belong. Rabavram Piresh, the Ibn Ezra says, Zachor Kiaisim Kamo. Ramban Dacha Bezadrach and the Piresh, the Ramban rejects the Rashi and the Ibn Ezra and explains Kisedusha Shmatsaakas Dalim Kashert Samatz Shamatsaakascha. Says the Ramban, why the connection to the Ger, to the outsider? Not just because you felt like a stranger, but more significantly, you know what's going on in this psukim? God says, remember when you were the underdog? And remember when you screamed out? And remember how I answered? And you defeated the, the one who was the sure bet? Egypt, the empire, chariots, Paro. You were the underdog. You were the outsider. And how did you win? Because you screamed out to me. Tzakas B'nai Yisrael, you called out to me. Says HaKadosh Baruch Hu, well if you aggravate these vulnerable, you know what they're going to do? Tzauk Yitzakelai, Shamo Eshmat Tzakaso. They're going to scream out and you should remember that that works. Because it worked for you. Only you're going to play the role of Egypt. You're going to drown. You're going to be destroyed. That's what the Ramban says. Continues the Yorachai. V'nir alomar apiakdama hayadua. So what's really going on here? This is politically incorrect, so if you're not prepared, close your ears. Kinishmos b'nei Yisrael him shorash ha The soul of the Jew is intrinsically sacred and intrinsically superior to the soul of the non-Jew. We once gave a series of shiurim on this topic. It's an excellent article in the latest journal, Chakira, by Rabbi Hanan Bolk on this subject. You can get it online. But is the soul of the Jew superior to the soul of the non-Jew? It's a big debate. You know, we can we can be politically correct, but the truth is that we have an entire stream within our within our scholarship who sees the soul of the Jew as superior intrinsically to the non-Jew. We have many who don't. We have many who don't, but we have many who do. The Yorachayim is among those who do, particularly those who connect with Kabbalah. Mystics see mystically the soul of the Jew emanating from a higher place and having an intrinsic greater sanctity. So he says the soul of the Jew is holier. So says the Orachayim, you might have thought the soul of the Jew is intrinsically holier, more sacred, superior, higher. So why? Because we descend from Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, who are the highest souls. We have the heritage of God. We are God's chosen. Right? Does chosen mean superior? That was the title of the of the of the series that we did. So according to the Orachim, yes, chosen means superior. Well, what happens when you feel you're superior? What do you tend to do? You look down on. You speak negatively. You're derogatory. You think they're less, they're inferior. And when you think someone is inferior to you, that is the genesis of exploiting others. When do you take advantage? When do you leverage when you think that they're less? 
so says God, that convert, don't think because they have an, or they originated with a non-Jewish soul, they're inferior, they're less. You're not really a member of the Jewish people. You're in, but you're not really in. You're one of us, but you're not really one of us. Says the Torah, no. They are entirely one of you. And remember that when you were in Egypt, you were just like them. You came from the lowest levels of Tumah. You too had to undergo a conversion at Sinai. You too undertook a transformation. Just like you don't want to be remembered, reminded of your, of your past, don't remind the other of their past. They're one of you with no distinction. Don't aggravate, don't cause pain, don't take advantage, because they are entirely, exactly like you, says the Orachayim HaKadosh. That's the, that's the gear. That's the gear. Don't, don't remind them, don't take advantage, don't put them down. I think this Orachayim, you know, it's very, in, in some, unfortunately, to me, tragically, in some from communities, they talk about the Goyim, in very uh, derogatory way. The Goyim, the Goyim, the Goyim. And, and it's so insular, and it's set up as if today's Goyim, you know, there, there were the Mitzrim, and there were the, 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 the Babylonians, destroyed the base of Mikdash, and the Romans, and they're the Goyim today. That's all part of one pool, the Goyim. It's us versus them. Life is us versus them. And when you talk about the Goyim in that way, and you view life through the prism of the Goyim, it, it's so unfortunate, it's sad, it's a Chil Hashem, but one is also themselves losing out on all that the Goyim have to offer us. Losing out on the relationships with special people and recognizing the goodness and the kindness and the, and the virtue uh, within that world. So I think this Orachayim's description that yulad anfei ha'ona'a where does, where does discrimination originate from? This is the Orachayim says. Where is the origin of discrimination? When you think someone is inferior to you. When you think they're different than you when you think that they are apart from you, when you think they're less than you, when you think they're less, shepachas, this is the quote of the Orachayim, shepachasum mehadragas hakadusha. when you think that they are less than you, then, mizeh yulad anfei hauna. that's where discrimination arises from. When you think people are less than you, it's very, very dangerous. Continuing, continuing. Um, Rabbi, yes. How do you answer the question that you know emphatically that there are people that are less than you? In the event, in the course of lifetime, in the course of a lifetime, how do you know they're less than you? In the course of a lifetime, you come across, you know, of people, you you know, a situation that their behavior, their attitudes, what they've done. It doesn't. You should feel sympathy for them, not that they're less than you. Feel sympathy for them. They are clearly, uh, yeah. It's it's never. There's now in New York. I I know from person where children, little children, seven, eight. The first thing they said, "I'm sorry about the guy." They use that word as such a derogatory. It's very negative. It's very negative consequences. But I think what the Torah is telling us, Mari, is that we should never view someone as being less or more. It's not a matter of less. It's that it's they're different. And it should, because the moment, it's such a dangerous place to think of someone as less. When you think of someone as less, you've, you've, it's like what Elie Wiesel said, you know, you think of them as invisible, you think of them as meaningless, you think of them as unworthy of your sympathy, unworthy of your support or protection. There, there are people who are, there are people who are unworthy, because they behave in an unworthy way, but they're still at Selim Elokim. I mean, there, there, there is such wickedness and evil that you destroy your own Selim Elokim, but I hope that we don't, we're not exposed to anyone at that level within our uh, sphere. Okay, continuing. Continuing. What should we look at next? Um, look at the Ramban. The Ramban says, Lest you think that the widow is by definition poor. The Almana, the widow could be a billionaire. She could be a gazillionaire. She's still a widow. She's still a widow. She's still lonely. She's still lacking. This fits with the Ksav Kabbalah. You can have money. You can have money coming out your ears. But if you're childless, 
if you're a widow or a widower, if you are in whatever reason pain. Happiness is not defined by money, says the Ramban. This widow could have all the money in the world. She still feels nafshash feila. Her soul feels low. She feels hollow. This notion that you're going to be put to death, our rabbis did not include it in all the laws of capital crimes. So this answer, who asked this question? Alex asked this question. Says the Ramban, why does it specifically say sword? Says the Ramban, because this isn't like an Onish Misa. Normally when the Torah says that you have a capital punishment, there's Misa Bidei Adam, there's when the secular, when the secular, when the, when the Beisden puts you to death, and there's Misa Bidei Shemaim, there's when you die of natural causes. So sometimes a person dies of natural causes, it's Misa Bidei Shemaim, it's God punishment. Says the Ramban, this Misa is not Misa Bidei Shemaim or Misa Bidei Adam. You know what this Misa is? You're going to go to war, and you're going to be killed in war. So you know what's going to happen? Below Hoda, you're going to be killed by sword, but your wife will never find out what happened to you. And what's going to be left? She'll be left in Aguna. God says, you make fun of the orphan or widow, not only am I going to kill you, but your family will never find out what happened to you. And they'll be left forever wondering. They'll be left, she'll be left in Aguna. Unbelievable, right? But the rabbi says this, it means Laulam they'll be they'll always be wondering what happened. Forever they'll be wondering what happened. That's what Rashi said. Where's the Ramban? Rashi also says the same thing. Look at the Ramban at uh, the Rashi rather. It says, I'm going to kill you. God says, I'm going to get angry, I'm going to kill you. And your wives will be... Of course, if you're dead, your wives are widows. Why did the Torah have to say it? This is a further curse. There won't be witnesses to the death of your husbands, and they'll be left forbidden to remarry. What does it mean that they're going to be orphans forever? They'll never inherit their father's estate. Beisden can't allow the inheritance to pass because they don't have absolute proof that the father's dead. Maybe he was captured, maybe he's still alive. So you think God knows how to give a good punishment. God knows how to get even. Don't mess with God. Don't mess with God. And if you mess with God's vulnerable, you're messing with God. So in the First World War, Rabbi... Uh, I know my mother was one of those uh, young uh, wives. A man left his wife to get exactly because of that reason, so that she shouldn't be left. Right, it's uh, not only the First World War. The Gemara brings in the time of David Amelech. Right. Uh, used to give a get before they went out to war. It would retroactively take effect. They would not be left so in Aguna. Why can't, all right, we do have it. So why can't we do that with the Aguna? That's uh, a another story. Another story. Beyond the scope of our parsha class today, says the Rashbam. Says the Rashbam. I spoke about it. If you go on our website, I spoke about that issue at the Women's Health and Allah Day. I spoke about Agunas. I spoke about that. Says the Rashbam. mida mida. God exacts our punishment according to the crime. Mida keneged mida. Mida keneged mida. Go back and look at the kliyakar. If you uh, make the orphan or the widow, or for that matter, the stranger, feel, if you aggravate them, Kliyakar is bothered by another, right? We've listed all these questions. None of us were bothered by. The Kliyakar is bothered by another question. It should say, In the previous passage, you talked about the Almana and the Asom. It's two, it's plural, it's they. It should say, if you aggravate them, why does it say if you aggravate him? And what's with all the redundancy? 
So if you aggravate him, he will cry out. I will hear. Why each time the double word? Why all the double language? Listen to the Kliyakar's creative interpretation. Because you're in business. This guy's an orphan. Or you're at shul and you're being mean to the widow. You're only being mean to one of them. But they go together in a pair. And when you're mean to one, the other one suffers, the other one hurts. So both are going to cry out to Hashem, and Hashem is going to hear both. And you're going to get a double punishment. So you think you're only being harsh to one of them, but they come in a pair, the Yasun Ba'amana. They come together. And when you mistreat one, they all feel the pain. And that's why the double language, because even though you think you're only connected to one, it affects both. You know who the other one is, says the Kliyakar. A second suggestion. Who is the father of the orphan? God. You cause pain to them. You know, if someone messes with your kid, is there a worse thing in the world? If someone messes with your kid, you'll tear their eyes out. You'll, do it, you'll, you'll, you'll start sounding like God. I'm patient, I'm calm, I can negotiate, we can mediate. But if you mess with my kid... You finished. So Kosh Baruch Hu says, you mess with one of my kids, my orphan, my widow, my vulnerable. You mess with them. You're messing with me. If you are mistreat, you're mistreating. Who's the oso, says the Kliyakar? Hashem. Not the orphan. If you're mistreating the orphan, then you're mistreating God. Then you're mistreating God. You're finished. You're finished. Because God is more sympathetic to the vulnerable and more responsive on their behalf and you are finished. The Orachayim is also bothered by the same question. So says the Orachayim, you know why it says, oh so, when is the punishment so harsh that God will kill you leaving your wife a widow and your children orphans? That's when you, that's when you exploit the widow and the orphan. But if you exploit others, you won't receive the same harsh punishment. It's forbidden. It's forbidden. It's wrong. It's prohibited. But it doesn't raise God's ire like if you take advantage of his widow or of his orphan. I'd want it to continue because the next section about lending Someone who needs a loan without interest, because again, the sensitivity, the kindness, the disadvantaged, and so on. But we'll have to stop here. But it's a very powerful message. The message of the Chizkuni, the Ibn Ezra, is that not only is the individual judged, society is judged by what it tolerates. If the disadvantaged are taken advantage of, all of society are held accountable, not only the perpetrators of the uh, taking advantage. Have a great week.